0: We need to stop letting people convince us that reconstituting a definition of masculinity, which is in part based on adventure and assertiveness and willingness to combat problems, I think we need to find a way to get over the idea that formulating a sense of masculinity which has those things is, is bad. Trust our own instincts. Uh, and try to be able to come up with a productive working image of what being a man in the 21st century means.
1: I'm joined today with David Olney. Thank you for joining us.
2: Good evening, Tim.
1: I'm also joined with our special guest, Peter Thompson. Thank you for joining us, Peter.
2: Uh, good evening.
1: Peter, you uh, were the first of us to kind of come across or gain a deep interest in a fellow by the name of Warren Farrell. Um, I understand that you would like to kind of start us off with the conversation about what he has to say today.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I've always had a keen interest in um, gender and gender-related issues, um, when I was young, I was a sensitive boy, and that got me into trouble sometimes. And and I never knew quite what was what was going on. Uh, in university, I took a real interest in um, uh, in uh, gender studies um, and learnt a huge amount from various authorities on the topic. I think what is so special about Warren Farrell is that he hearkens back to that real second wave notion of gender equality and examines ways that we can help men get there in a really productive way. Um, uh, Warren Farrell, he originally was teaching classes, I believe, in at uh, uh, university in the 70s and got the attention of the American National Organization for Women who inducted him into the organization. He's uh, also the author of The Myth of Male Power. Um, Since then, he's uh, founded countless men's support groups around uh, the U.S., and in 2009, President Obama asked Farrell to join the uh, newly created White House Council on Women and Girls in an advisory capacity. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So he's uh, not a person without bona fides in the in terms of being an advocate, a, a, a real feminist and an advocate of gender equality.
2: And the uh, thing is, over the extended period of time he's been involved there so been so many short-term trends in what to study, what to do, what policy to take, and yet he's maintained his relevance across four decades. That would make him a pretty rare person, wouldn't it? That's exactly
0: right. Um, and that's what attracted me to this book was that there are a lot of complicated perspectives in contemporary views on gender and, and gender relations and the status of the sexes. What I loved about Warren Farrell's approach is that he wasn't interested in casting blame in so much as um as much as he was interested in trying to alleviate suffering for everyone. One of the the co-writer of this book, um, which is the the book that got me into uh, Dr. Farrow, the book is called The The Boy Crisis. Um, the co-writer is uh, John Gray, PhD, who's the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. So the two of them kind of came together and worked on this project. Interestingly, when President Obama approached Warren Farrell to advise on this Council, White House Council of Women and Girls, um, Farrell had one request back for President Obama, and it's that he would also create a White House Council on Boys and Men. That wasn't acted upon, neither by the Obama administration and now by the Trump administration, but it was It was after that where uh, Farrell talks in his book that he got together with John Gray and he assembled a whole bunch of academics from different disciplines and got them all together and thought, right, what is the, if we want to actually make life better for men and for women, is there any type of unified approach that we could take that would work to talk to young men about, that would work for parents and educators, and that would also provide benefits in society at large? Um, And that ended up that research and collaboration and discussion ended up being the contents of uh, the boy crisis and i think it's a fantastic read
2: i think what's fabulous about his work too as at no point does he want to do anything to improve the well-being of boys that won't be good for society as a whole nothing he wants to do is going to take away from the continued and increasing well-being of girls or women it's all designed to enhance the overall well-being of society and that's what's really great here it's not arguing that you have to take anything away from anyone to improve boys situation the exact opposite that we can improve boys situation and, in doing so improve the sort of social justice the inclusion the well-being of everyone in society as a consequence
0: that's exactly right. Um, there's a line that um, that uh, Warren Farrell uh, says in the book, which I think kind of encapsulates that perfectly, and that is, "Boys that hurt end up hurting us," yeah. and that's I think is a really brilliant kind of encapsulation because it acknowledges the harm that boys cause and or men cause, you know something like it's some ridiculous amount. Like I I think it is over 90% of mass murders, I believe, uh, are committed by men in America.
2: One of the things that grabbed me about those numbers about mass shootings in particular was when he makes the point that if white boys hurt in America, they become the school shooters, Mm -hmm. that the absolute, you know, the vast majority of school shootings – um, have been by white boys who fit most of the categories of being in danger uh, that he talks about. You know, dad's gone, loss of meaning, not doing well at education, you know, all the other things he lists. It's just a litany. And in a sense, you know, the ultimate aim of their mass shooting is normally to let the pain out and, you know, suicide by cop in the end. Mm.
1: Added to his clout, uh, and I like that you brought this up uh, in an, at another time. David was the, uh, added to his clout. He um, is Phil Zimbardo talking about similar lines as well.
2: Yeah, like Phil Zimbardo's book on this topic. You know, like everything Phil Zimbardo does, it takes the different approach of very much looking from a you know um, a social psychological perspective. But what's clear if you put Phil Zimbardo and Warren Farrell together, what we see is that young males not having role models at home with dad, not having role models in school with male teachers in primary school, starting probably too early in education systems when they're not ready to sit still. In what he describes as feminised education systems, and that's not a criticism of female teachers. It's saying that if you build an education system to benefit any group too much, another group will suffer the consequences. So if you have a very physical, rambunctious education system, it tends to discriminate against girls. If you have a very sit still and behave education system with too much pressure at age five, it tends to discriminate against boys. If you're like the Scandinavians who are incredibly clever and everyone starts school at seven and it's a system that has both sit still activities and be outgoing and be outside activities, Guess what? Boys and girls both do well at education.
1: And Zimbardo raises the point as well. I think, uh, cause this is along the same lines as what you were saying, Peter, it's, um, mm-hmm. I think it's 97% of, um, incarcerations are men, like people in prison. Yeah. In America Some yeah. ridiculously high. Like it's so, so let's say jailable crimes. Let's
2: mm-hmm. say, and that the prison population has gone up something like three hundred percent in three decades. That's
1: yeah, right. I mean, It'd been mostly drugs, I'd imagine.
0: It's a bizarre situation. I know the the fatherless rate has jumped from something like twenty four percent in the seventies to something like at least doubled in between the seventies and now. And uh, there was a study that Farrell references, which is that every 1% increase in fatherlessness in a neighbourhood predicts a 3% increase in adolescent violence.
2: Wow. Yeah, it's incredible numbers. And see, part of this that's so interesting too is this is a comment about, you know, dads being missing, but it's more broadly a comment about society as a whole. What value is there on relationships? What value is there on family? What positive role models are there for relationships? What positive role models are there for family? What resources are there to help relationships and family achieve positive outcomes? So even though we look at this as, where's dad? Well, dad's the problem. No, dad not being there is a consequence of a whole series of other problems. And what seems to be great with Warren Farrell, like with Phil Zimbardo, is going, here's the thing we can see, but here's all the factors behind it. So we have to change the society and the available resources and the expectations and the support mechanisms to get a better all-over outcome. And that, you know, if I remember correctly, it's that well, every OECD country, boys are falling behind girls in education, mm-hmm. falling behind in terms of finding meaningful work and mental health. Yeah. We need to balance that with... The gains in all these things for women are massively significant, but we should have been able to have gains for women and improve the well being of men in the sense of them not being economically and socially dominant as they traditionally were in patriarchal societies. But in going, well, if we're going to build a better society, that is about balancing the well being of everyone and meeting everyone's needs because their needs are different.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and we're going to have to, and this is something that I know we've had conversations about in the past, Tim, is the kind of the the new model of masculinity that will be necessary to to start to mythologize and and kind of promote if we want to see men making a meaningful jump into into other kind of uh, avenues of meaning. I mean, the way I think I think Warren Farrell puts it, something like something like this. and I think we might've had um, conversations along this line. Uh, you know, um, women have had a hundred years in excess of a hundred years of brilliant theorists, brilliant thinkers, and incredibly brave people opening the possibilities of what it means to be a woman from the in, like incredibly insanely confined origins of where they started, um, you know, over a hundred years ago. And long before that, through second wave feminism and now into the, into the modern day. Whereas men, we haven't really even begun. And our conceptions of what is a, is a man and what a man's life is and what a man does are possibly significantly behind where, where women have advanced to. We haven't put in the groundwork yet. And that, that's going to be, the type of change, David, that, that you were insinuating might bring more fathers into the home. This idea of the father warrior, mm. I think he uses, I think Farrell uses in the book, this idea of a man who is masculine because he is an involved family person. He takes primary care of children. He's involved in the house and with cooking and with, uh, with running a household in a, in a positive and
2: exciting way. It, it can't be seen as a reduction. And this is the thing to sort of jump back to 100 years. If we look, you know, a lot of males 100 years ago were probably nice guys who didn't think too much about how few choices their wives and daughters had. Uh-huh. And the majority of guys now are still nice guys mm. who probably don't necessarily think too deeply about how do we get the changes we got so that their wives and daughters could do so much more than their grandmothers did. But at the same point, there's an equal lack of thought in, well, if we're not the males, we were that got given economic and social power by default. What are we? Mm. So the question is, what were we? What do we want to keep of that? What do we want to become? How do we get there? Women have been coming up with really deep analysis and thought solutions you know, thoughtful possibilities for this for decades. Whereas with men, the ultra-masculine hero still has a role, but it's smaller and it relates less to most men. So, you know, I'll give an example. You're listening to an episode of The Unforgiving 60 the other night, a podcast by cut SAS officers or retired SAS officers, where they had another retired SAS officer on Mark Wales. And Tim and Ben asked Mark, "Oh, so what was it like You know, when your child was born? And he just says straight up, best day of my life and the most rewarding experience ever, mm-hmm. after a lifetime of essentially being the quintessential action hero. So what we have is individuals going, you can take, in a sense, the best of what was and want to aspire to the best of the new, but only in a sense because you've chosen to do it. Right. And you're the kind of hard charger who will do it no matter what anyway. Hmm. But where's the social and intellectual guidance for the person who isn't a hard charger, but is kind of a mellow follower of whatever the social norms are. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's going to, it's going to be a, a kind of a multifaceted process. We can kind of look at, at at what women have done and, um, and maybe take a bit of inspiration from that. You know, I, I really love some of the theorists. Some of the insights that I've gotten from feminist theory have blown my mind and, and we can do, I think we can make equivalent, exciting revelations about male, the, the nature of men and masculinity. For example, Warren Farrell talks about in the book, what is the idea of a hero and how does it function in our society? And he presents the rather bleak, although I think it's actually quite accurate, hypothesis that the title of hero is something that we imbue with value so that it motivates young men to physically risk themselves for the approval of society.
2: The the hero is rarely the person who comes up with the idea on their own. It's Mm. to fulfill that social role. And it brings out something else that is a really uncomfortable thing that all societies need to deal with. Historically, young males are disposable. Mm. Old males can get young females pregnant. So old powerful males can keep the species going, whereas young males are physically fit enough to be used to do dangerous things for social goods. So we have a terrible reality that even though some of those young males are going to grow up to be old males, we're initially going to treat them like they're disposable, put value on them that says, if you're not a hero, you're nothing. Mm. And at times in history, great mechanism for maintaining the stability of your society at the cost of gender relations and power relations. So totally and utterly destabilizing, you know, the relationship. So I think here of Nicholas Christakis' book, Blueprint, we talked about the uh, history of marriage. And in hunter-gatherers, it was normally uh, monogamy, often serial monogamy, but normally monogamy. Agricultural societies came along and it was you know polygamy because to maintain land and maintain families and to keep everything under control when you were sedentary, you needed more people. Mm. And the Romans and Greeks both went back to monogamy because it took young males out of that danger zone of risky behaviour and, once again, made them connected to people and socially responsible to family in a way that made them less dangerous. So we can see, even in antiquity, that turning young males into heroes was sometimes useful if there was a good war on that was socially beneficial. But more often than not, it just created social and political havoc by having young males with no chance of... Having a social role, a family role, an economic role, and a meaningful future.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't wanna I don't wanna derail this because this is clearly going in a direction that what I'm about to say sort of is not. But I think it's important to highlight. I mean, we've been talking let's say for 15 minutes now, probably been a bit more than that. And I can imagine that some of what we said might be triggering for lack of a better <laughs> phrase, although that's probably quite apt for some people who, let's say in what are we up to? Sixth wave, seventh wave fem- feminism. You know, some of these, some of these things that we're saying, are, let's say not compatible with, you know, some, some theories out there is maybe a, some, some frameworks out there is, is, is at least accurate.
2: Oh, absolutely. Is it, we're, is it we're, important? Not, we're not compatible with multiple waves of feminism because that, that body of knowledge keeps growing. Mm. And I would ask the question of them, Is what you're doing heading towards a more just, equitable, and rounded society in which all people can eventually thrive? Or is it demanding that different groups conform to a utopian view that most people maybe wouldn't choose? So all of this is always contentious, and that's that's the point of trying to fix these problems.
1: It is contentious and I would agree like some, you know, if people would probably, um, they might, they might, they might, uh, have have at least have have at least those intentions, even if they're not necessarily agreeing with what we're saying, if people aren't agreeing with what we're saying so far or are finding it, let's say triggering and you're Mm -hmm. still listening, that is good. (laughs) Well done. What I would like to highlight is that the reasons that let's say, you know, feminism has, you know, at least a hundred years of, good academic literature and 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 theory behind it and mm-hmm. and progression behind it is because it, it is very definite that that there were a lot of gender inequalities that that that's let's say swayed uh, against women or, mm-hmm. or out of women's favor that mm-hmm. isn't to say that life was peaches and cherries for men in those times which is something that you're saying now is that being conscripted for wars and things like that and, and being effectively cannon fodder wasn't exactly a joyride just because you got to go home and exert some power over your, your family. Unit. That
2: was the prize. That's right. The prize for being socially throwaway is you get to have power over other people when you get back. And there's anthropologists who've made this argument and those arguments make everyone uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. That oh, young absolutely.
2: males were given power over other people so that we can abuse them until that point. But the point is, I think the the biggest thing going on here at some level is that males had power, women didn't have power. In order to get power, you have to be very organized, very disciplined, come up with great arguments and help motivate people and change people's minds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas men losing power is a positive for society as a whole. But in losing power, you change the nature of questions of identity, purpose, meaning, status. And you need to provide new answers to those questions so you get social cohesion, social justice and equity instead of just a loss and a problem that's not being properly understood.
1: Definitely. I I think another thing let's say to keep in the back of our minds here and it kind of frames the whole thing is that men and women weren't at each other's throats for the entirety of history. You know, even though there were these power inequalities, often they would work together as a family unit. It's not as if the narrative has been that, you know, women have always been oppressed and men have always sought out to oppress them in kind of active conscious efforts to suppress women as as a whole, not just not just those that they know. That the
2: social same. norms were imposed on most people, male and female, with an equal level of pressure to conform to the social norms that benefited the system as a whole.
1: yes it's it's not to say that you know men in the past haven't been at some kind of fault, mm-hmm. but it also isn't that men have for as long as you know, for as long as we've had societies that men have sought out to oppress women as a whole, and that it has been a power play. When I think it has just been the, the set of circumstances that have evolved over time that I'm, I'm going to say are not socially constructed in their entirety. Mm-hmm have worked together played at their strengths to survive yeah. and it's and it's now that we're in relatively sophisticated society comparatively a lot more civil society that we are able and have been able to create much nicer living circumstances for women mm. and and that is also now true of men and we don't have to look at that in a a tip a tip for tat lens is, is my point
0: yeah, well, before the podcast started rolling, we were having a, a an interesting conversation. We were talking about fundamental attribution error. Mm. And I, I think that kind of plays into, into this conversation, funnily enough. Since I've kind of understood fundamental attribution error, which is, uh, gosh, um, could you give us a quick rundown, somebody who's smart?
2: I'm hoping I'm right. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's always been that distinction between uh, I must be positive or the world against me but if you do the same thing, it's because the world was kind to of you, but you're not competent. Right. So it's assuming that other people are different to us, that we right. must be in the right. They must be in the wrong. The world must be, you know, if it's in favor of me, it's not in favor of them or vice versa. It's assuming an artificial difference because we don't want to acknowledge our similarities.
1: It's abstract form of solipsism. Yeah. yeah.
0: Since, since I've learned that principle, um, I have become far better at solving disputes between myself and other people because I'm able to say, look, actually, I understand exactly what you, what you're saying and why you're upset. And I agree that I've done that. And I agree that I've made you upset. I can accept my own culpability. And as a person who likes to resolve conflicts, even if I'm not in the wrong, I know that that's a fantastic way to resolve conflicts. At the world is complicated. I'm often, even in the worst argument, you can be still 10% responsible for simply the bad for situation there. that you're in. Yeah. It's simply for being there. And so it, it, as, a, as a person, I found a huge step forward in my life was when I could acknowledge that, saw that most people had generally good impulses and were trying to do the right thing, and that if I used that as a kind of opener, then that would really help. Me heal interpersonal relationships. Similarly, I think that that approach is really useful when it comes to um, uh, resolving gendered issues. Yes, as Tim has been saying, the, the vast majority of history has been a misery for women, perhaps specifically a misery for women. But if we want to go about fixing things, it can be a good place to start not to get everyone's backs up to say, All people have suffered because of their gender through history. And I think that's a really great place to start. And that's what I love about Warren Farrell's approach, kind of from a second wave feminist idea that there are negatives to being whatever
2: gender you are. There's negatives to limitations mm-hmm. of arguing that what we value is people being themselves. Mm-hmm. When the social norms were, you don't get to be yourself. You get to be what we tell you, you are. Mm-hmm.
1: And equally there just isn't much utility in comparing everyone's oppression. and, and
2: No, and- because if we want a better society, what we've got to do is mm-hmm. get rid of as many forms of oppression but also for anyone who had too much power, if you're going to take some power away from somebody because that power gets poorly used historically, what do you replace that power with? Mm. Because this the sense of identity will meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, power makes it easy to get things done. Mm. So a loss in power is likely to lead to a sense of meaninglessness and an inability to, achieve the outcomes you desire and become the thing you value. And that's going to make an angry person. Now, a lot of those angry people happen to be young males and a lot of those young males end up doing violent things and our jails are full of young males. So there's a pattern here that says if we don't help a lot of people have a better sense of their identity, their ability to empower themselves, achieve things they value, define their own identity in much broader terms within a much more inclusive society where equity and justice are grounded for everyone in some relatively new way we will continue having problems where even if things apparently get better for someone for someone else they're going to be angry and then potentially lash out and that people lashing out with violence Is incredibly detrimental to our society and with the levels of sexual violence in our society that isn't going to be solved by locking people up that's an end point what are the causes and what can we do to reduce that form of violence happening like we need to reduce most of the regular forms of violence
0: I think um, part of it, part of the solution, and, and I have to stress that this isn't a, a woe is me negative podcast. What's so brilliant about Warren Farrell's book is the, is, the, is the very real possibility of making excellent progress in the upcoming decades on this topic. I Constructive, mean, right? I, I mean, it's a topic of conversation very often around um, kind of people of our age, I think, Tim, kind of noticing how our father's generation are in terms of their masculinity, how we are in terms of our masculinity in regards to how flexible it is to our identities underneath, and then how open younger kids, even uh, the younger kind of generation of boys becoming men right now, I think they're already making excellent progress, actually. I think we're dealing with an incredibly Emotionally intelligent generation of of young men, which is part partly um, on the way to fixing the issue. Uh, uh, Warren Farrell kind of describes it as men you have used to have had a heroic intelligence. This is the intelligence of uh, of taking on danger to gain esteem, taking on danger and hardship to accrue power, with an end to exercising it over other people without regard to one's physical or mental health and what is emerging and what would be great to foster is a male health intelligence when you're thinking about is my family strong am i healthy and treating myself well am i treating the people around me well am i making intelligent decisions for a sustainable future and it's already underway but i think what is going to make what is going to alleviate or worsen this problem is the degree to which society in general from the family level to the government level is 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 helping men reformulate this type of positive meaning in our lives
2: and making space for it mm-hmm. within how we define society see you know, when you guys talk about this from you know, the possibilities for younger males I kind of find myself in a strange thing being 48, being from a generation that was still fairly, you know, Australians were still fairly masculine at my age, but being blind, not ever being able to play the hero role. Mm. So very much having to define my own space, which has not been in any way to take on the traditional hero role, but to find my own kind of role of empowering people, through education, mentoring and believing in them Mm. and being very gender neutral in, I've hopefully empowered as many young men as I have young women. So I found my way because I fit outside the social norms and that's not an easy thing. What we want is a society where the social norms go, well, what are you going to do? That's good for you. Good for family, good for young people good for society and how are we going to help you do it? Right. So instead of it being the struggle to be different and you know, when you talk about you to the amount of emotional intelligence of very young males, I kind of reflect on the last few years of teaching. Yeah. There's a lot of emotionally intelligent young males I've taught who have no concept what they're going to do post uni in the changing job market but are still carrying the social pressure that they have to be a primary breadwinner and define themselves through career. Yeah. So despite the fact their start is better, I have a terrible feeling that because society hasn't changed fast enough to let them be something different, that they'll suffer damage as they try and work out either how to be brave and stick to their new image of self and their new way of being within society because society hasn't made itself ready. Form.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you've you've hit the nail absolutely on the head there. In the book, Warren Farrell talks about the. We've talked earlier. We brushed upon the fact that men are underperforming uh, versus girls in um in well in all fields of education. So that is primary, secondary, and tertiary education. Now, uh, this is reflected in the job job market when men are doing more of the more of the labor which is going to be most readily replaceable with automation. Where is my lovely little spreadsheet here in America? And I imagine it would be similar here, the overwhelming majority of truck drivers, long haul truck drivers are male, for instance. And that's some of the very first stuff on the chopping block in terms of automation. And of course, manufacturing and and other industries have similar gendered Um, gendered uh, uh, kind of stereotypes, I suppose. At the same time, we're not very good at getting at kind of future-proofing men. One country that uh, is uh, seemingly very good at this is Japan, which has a kind of extensive vocational program that splits, I think, during the middle of the high school years. If you go to um, a Japanese work school, 99.6% 99.6% of trade school graduates receive jobs after graduation. I would suggest that if we were looking for a model for a program to help young men get into meaningful, future-proof work, that might be something that we look at.
2: Yeah, our focus on you must go to uni. Why? Because we're going to be a service economy. Mm. It means we're lacking people who can do technical, practical things. Right. And let's be blunt. There may be a male predisposition for technical practical things where more than 50% of plumbers, electricians, will be male for a very long time. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that as long as the opportunity is open for anyone to have a go at anything they want to with the support of society right. to go, no, they deserve an opportunity.
1: That's it's partially due to universities having identity crises about whether they're vocational or just higher learning. Well, they were given that
2: by government policy,
1: yeah. But but the universities play into that as well. It's like it, they, they might have been given those circumstances, but they've also doubled down on it.
2: Oh, yeah, e- you yeah, know, income stream equals woohoo. We better chase it. That's yeah. right, mm-hmm. yeah. So, education's not helping because the sit and be bored only suits people who can see the benefit was if you really weren't sure you wanted to be there and you couldn't see another choice. Yeah. In Phil Zimbardo's book about young men, he did some interesting surveying within the U S military of why young guys joined the U S military. And yeah, the answers were just so common person after person after person in the survey. I want to be active. I want to be outdoors. And I want to be part of something physical, and we're told we're meant to be heroes and I can't see anywhere else where you're allowed to be anymore. Hmm. Yeah, so again, w- they're absorbing the historical knowledge and just finding the the, the bastion for a pre existing model.
1: Yeah, I'd imagine that there are I, I I don't know the statistics on this, and this is so it's just a guess. But I'd imagine that seeing as we have better stats on more people being depressed and the minimum requirements of entry into the armed forces, I'd imagine there are more men being uh, turned away now mm. from, from trying to get into the military because they've had antidepressants in the last you know two years or whatever it is, or because mm. they've had a history of mental health problems or yeah. um, drugs or, or whatever it is that society is turning so if, 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 if they've lost hope and turned to other things before they've turned toward the military, mm. then their chances of getting into the military are lessened and so the problem is compounded, I guess. Well,
0: mm. we're in dad, dad, father deprivation, which we were talking about before, is a significant predictor of uh, the rate of male suicide, drug overdose, obesity, video game addiction. It also shortens telomeres um, by the age of... Very,
2: very, very bad.
0: Yeah, extraordinarily bad. And so so you're exactly right, Tim. It's a self-perpetuating cycle where where, where um, I don't mean to disparage anyone who serves in the military because obviously it's, the most, it's about the most noble thing you could do. But, yes, I imagine there would be a lot more people being turned away now as a percentage of, of total applicants than ever before.
2: Mm. And if what, it was so historically does... the way out for people who didn't know where else to go, And yet now that's denied too. And yet society has not built an alternative. And this is the point. Society, you know, the constructivist model, you know, we shape ourselves a bit, but we're largely shaped by experience. That's what social psychology is all about. And if society doesn't know how to shape you and you don't know how to shape yourself because you haven't got the tools for self-creation and society's lost interest in trying to shape you, What the heck do you become?
0: I mean, it's, it's interesting because we talk about, you know, we talk about the impact of, or or the the conversation is often had about representation on screen or representation in in TV and media. And I think representation is great. Um, I like to see content where different types of people are represented. I think it makes it for more informative. I think it makes it better. I think in entertainment, it makes it more entertaining, but then at the same time, that kind of acknowledges the power of what people are exposed to. We're talking right now about what is required to set men straight in some ways, and that's kind of a positive, articulated idea of what we can be. We can't become something that we don't have an image of in front of us. I think and that kind of uh, touches on what we are talking about earlier. Part of the project of feminism over the past hundred years or hundred more years, um, exceptionally long history in South Australia, which I think we ought to be more proud of, but it's neither here nor there, uh, has been forming these images of what women can be of, of, of the female astronaut of you know, Amelia Earhart crossing the Atlantic, these uh, uh, fantastic role models. Uh, whereas, Uh, I really don't want to point fingers because what's so wonderful about the book is that Warren Farrell doesn't point fingers. He says it's a complex system. Both sides have things that need to be fixed. If both sides needs are fixed, then the whole system functions better and it will have a snowballing positive effect. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. But my experience at university, along with the really brilliant feminist theory that I accept, that I super loved, like Jermaine Greer seventy second wave stuff, which, which is brilliant, I did get very, very, very depressed about the the way that men are perceived, and I, I started to really take that on myself and internalize the most negative possible ideas about what a man is to the point where I became very, very confused about a lot of things kind of deep down. I found quite distressing and I imagine I'm not the only one. So, you know, it's, it's difficult. So I don't want to say anyone's wrong. I think people should try and people should agitate for justice in whatever way they see fit. But I think that there is a current lack of positive images for men to aspire to. And I think in the universities, that's doubly the case. I think it can be a, a very negative, place for young men who are just trying to formulate their identity i'm not you sure if it. i can be any more attacked any more tactful my, than tactful.
1: that yeah <laughs> my, my gender studies didn't focus on men at all by the way when i did okay
0: oh that's cool uh, oh i mean not cool that's terrible but you know what i mean
1: yeah i guess it's just it, it's just an anecdote let's say and not that i did much of it but yeah it's it it, it 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 isn't a constructive place for 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 male identity. I, I don't think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I it's really been the most bizarre couple of years I like I said kind of at the start of the podcast I got interested in their stuff because I was the weird boy who wanted to play make-believe not kick the football and I was always excluded received a fair bit of bullying didn't understand male banter but eventually I did kind of when I when I started in my early adult years I started to understand ah, it's just a stupid game that men play it's kind of a vetting procedure I looked at it with my through my David Attenborough glasses and I thought, these are just funny apes. And I was kind of able to see a little bit of... I was able to see a little bit of value in there in the way that men held ourselves. And I was able to see an interpretation of it that wasn't entirely negative, that had at least a little bit of reason behind it. And, and that's what kind of kept me interested, was trying to figure out what this riddle of riddle of gender and masculinity was all about
1: it seems that you circumvented, let's say your personal lacking identity Mm -hmm. by, by giving the most, giving charity to the things that you didn't understand and that, that that probably left you out.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think that was, that was a huge part of me kind of making peace with my identity in the end and my masculinity. I, I think in a, in a way, that's a little bit, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but in a way that's a little bit similar to David's uh, perhaps uh, experience of being an outsider mm. that gave him a unique view on, on the whole, on the game, so to speak on the social game.
2: Um, do you recognize that how many people want to put the work in? Cause when you do the David Addenberry, and you go, Oh, look at the male humans. Mm. They're being odd. Mm. Oh, and some appear to be leading and others appear to be following. Mm. oh they're the ones that don't want to think for themselves so as usual following the path as prescribed by those who are popular or powerful is so much easier than doing your own thing Mm. and pretty much you talk to anyone who's done their own thing the outcomes are really positive but the cost along the way Mm. can
0: really be significant I remember what I was going to ramble on about. Sorry sorry to interrupt, David, pardon me. Um, So I came into university with this idea of like, right, going to try and expand upon, I'm going to expand upon my knowledge of men. Obviously there's some good things there. Obviously some stuff is problematic, but we can work through it by recognizing that there's good and bad, there's wheat and chaff, and we can sort through it through the process of of academic exploration. I have (laughs) never received so much hate than for suggesting that men actually are vitally in, in need of, of some consideration and some help. Some of the vitriol that I've received and some of the comments for, for just making that assertion, um, that the condition of everyone could be improved by focusing on men more is pretty extraordinary. Uh, I think it's, especially with our online lives now and the connectivity that we have online, I think a lot of young people, boys who make similar kind of pleas for compassion or understanding are, are shot down and shot down because there is the assumption of, of privilege, which is, um, kind of relates back to the, the kind of the intersectional feminist approach to, to gender, maybe, which, which I think is really weird. The reason that I think it's weird is that nobody ever says, uh, oh, this white male is making a point about, uh, gender, Uh, let's ask him have you got a disability Uh, what was your childhood like you know how much money did your parents have what uh, have you ever been uh, physically assaulted and work through and finding out what type of experience that is and then taking or leaving what they have to say because of that It, it just it's they appear to be appear to be but via a cursory examination a white healthy male and therefore their opinion is redundant
1: yeah, and and possibly, like, let's let's even chuck heterosexual into the mix there.
2: But just the assumption of it. It's, it's the, the, assu-
0: the assumption, of it, and, the, and which yeah. is the, the, the most, which flies in the face of the theory itself, which yeah. is to suggest that that even somebody who is apparently white might have experience another uh, series of factors that have given them an insight into living as a marginalized person which is completely ignored by the vast majority of activists. So, uh, you know, we come come into this, we get to this weird point where I've kind of been referring to, uh, you know, uh, post, I've I've been, you know, kind of praising second wave feminism and shying a bit away from other things. It's not because I don't think that new theories are genius, because I think they are genius, but the way, a lot of them are genius, but the way that popular, the way that they're popularized and the way that those theories and concepts are used once they get out into the public domain is so contrary to what they were designed for and and any utility that they might, that they might get the idea that you can, the idea that you needn't listen to anyone who is of a certain apparent gender and race about any significant issue or that they ought not to have the right to hold an opinion about issues because of a person's unchangeable characteristics is, is just madness to me. And I think one which is stopping progress, which would help everyone. You know, as we've been talking about in this conversation, the real tragedy is that we could potentially be making better progress on helping men not hurt women and to not hurt ourselves. Mm. And I think that's the really maddeningly frustrating part, but that's just my opinion. Um,
1: So like, I I wholeheartedly agree with you that there's some hypocrisy of the intersectionalists. Let's say that they're not affording everyone the same Mm. assessments. You know, are Mm -hmm. we asking, you know, white heterosexual men, have they been abused? Mm -hmm. Are we asking, you know, uh, whatever, any series of questions, but i think we, like i think we said this before I'm, I'm not even sure that there's much utility in comparing those kinds of oppression and no, no, i was
0: i was just pointing out yeah no, so that it is, that it is internally is. internally inconsistent
2: the problem is we have people yeah. playing zero-sum games mm. thinking that to get their win someone else you know has to be well has to have something taken away from them because historically they had it that's mm. no, not how society is going to get better that's how we'll just keep competing and finding new ways to decide who the in-group and who the out-group are.
0: Mm. Until we see
2: it as a plus-sum game of a better society. mm. We just keep making the same mistakes in new ways. We'll build up someone by reducing someone else. And whether we do that through race, sexuality, gender, whatever, as long as we keep playing a zero-sum game, we're just moving the goalposts of oppression.
0: I mean, to, be, to give the devil his due, um, kind of common, common enemy politics is a really good way to solidify your in-group.
2: Yeah, and ideologically. not being rude, when you've got so many waves of a theory, so, so many waves of feminism that amongst themselves could spend the next 10 years arguing and unpicking each other's thoughts, what's the best way to make them politically cohesive and able to bring about outcomes? to find a common enemy. You know, common threat, as Jonathan Haidt says, is the greatest way to bring people together. And if the commonest threat on planet Earth is why it might historically have a common threat, it's a way to bring your activism together. And it will bring your activism together and you might get an outcome, but it will be a zero-sum outcome. One that just shows that at the end, a genuine improvement in society as a whole is harder to get, and when we reflect later, we go, "Well, did we actually try?" This is this is
1: obviously affecting you know uh, African American men as well, who have had there is um, really good statistics following the the fatherless homes for, for that for that group of people, mm-hmm. um, because it, it, if anything, it's probably been happening to a, a larger extent for a longer time.
2: So they're our precursor of these problems. Yeah. They happen 20 years, 30 years earlier and make up the majority of the US prison population, despite being an absolute minority of the overall US population. So what it is, it's a warning. If we keep making these social mistakes, the cost for society gets bigger.
1: And and you wouldn't want to focus that, uh, like a policy just specifically, I mean, you might have some things that, let's say, tailor a little bit to african-american men that because maybe there's different cultural settings that you need to cater for but you wouldn't want to just focus a policy setting on that subset of people because you're not gonna you're not you're not gonna then leave the you know the incarcerated demographic as then 50 50 or it'll be dominated by some other group so there's no reason why you can't Focus it on on everyone. Like it's it's not it's not as if it's, it's not as if to to alleviate the amount of uh, African American men in U.S. prisons, you would just focus your let's say keeping fathers in home policies on African American men because there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't uh, accommodate for for uh, other cultural groups in your society. No, at that's the same point. Time. You may have
2: ten versions of the policy. Yeah, exactly. But the balance to the other ten, ten yeah, you know, the other side of the policy platform would be making sure that women have the economic resources to be able to be independent if their partner is dangerous to them and their kids. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, the broad policy is we'll try and make this work that relationships and families can be cohesive and function well, but we'll make sure that no one has to stay if it's bad. And to do one or the other, to do either on its own, we'll solve a small problem. But what we're talking about here is the big collective thing of what kind of society do we want overall? Yeah. In terms Tim from complex problem solving society is really, you know, Russell Ackoff's idea of a mess, lots of overlapping problems. The difference is like some messes out in the world. We live in this one and can't just call it a mess and shrug. So start working out which problems are attached to which others and which solutions, will have as many positive impacts as possible.
1: if you want a really low resolution analogy you got to focus on cures rather than um alleviating symptoms.
2: Yeah. Um
1: or prevention.
2: You know, yeah. Yeah, cure yeah, yeah, prevention. Where you can, yeah. But start start working towards we don't want people even ending up in court the first time. Mm. Yeah. We don't want women going should I want to leave but I can't. We don't want kids watching violence at home.
1: That requires being really honest with ourselves about...
2: Yeah, but that's not going to make society very happy either because if what the norms say is we've got a good society, it's all going swimmingly well, and if you don't think so, you're the problem. Yeah. Well, that's not very helpful historically. So the irony is here we have historical norms then in combat with the new norms that are trying to be constructed about letting people have new identities and sense of self and opportunities and we have you know, norms that are dissolving and leaving people without clear identity and all this is happening simultaneously so let's at least you know capture the interconnectedness wouldn't be a bad place to start
1: no my my best proposal here and and this this doesn't really help in terms of constructing meaning and 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 helping people form form purpose through 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 work and such but in terms of clarifying how males can and should emote with others and form relationships the best let's say short summary of that um, is Elaine de baton in his school of life video how to be a man I'm not sure if you've seen it it's four and a half minutes of effectively em- 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 emotional brilliance (laughs) yeah it 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 basically just it it kind of tears down the idea of james james bond suave coldness and instead of asking Mm. men to be cool it uh asks men to be to To be warm warm. yeah Mm. that's Uh right yeah
0: Yeah, right no i've I've seen that one elaine is elaine de baton is is incredible now that's that's exactly right i mean we need to and at the same time i, I it feels so wrong I, I wanted to advocate that yeah we have this new conception of of men based upon you know our bravery to seek warmth and our bravery to buck against social trends that say men have to be cold you know you know we can take a little bit of excitement um, and adventure even though the um what is it, the the Diagnostic Manual of um, Mental Disorders? The DSR, oh, DSM-5. The DS, DSM-5. Even though the DSM-5 has said that a, a key component of traditional masculinity in a negative way is the lust for adventure, I would still say to that maybe we should start finding ways to get in similar ways that, that men have rightly looked at the way that gender is special and how they can be happy and proud of themselves for who they are I think we need to start we need to stop letting people convince us that reconstituting a definition of masculinity which is in part based on adventure and assertiveness and willingness to combat problems I think we need to find a way to get over the idea that formulating a sense of masculinity which has those things is is bad to get away from that idea and trust our own instincts uh, and try to be able to come up with a productive working image of what being a man in the 21st century means
1: i think that's a a perfect place to end it and and so with that i will uh, throw it to david if there's any final comments
2: no it sounds to me an excellent place to end in that We need to refine what we are, but in the same token, to not give up the best of what we already are. So, you know, can we jettison some bits that are about power over other people, but keep the desire to take risks, but make them positive ones? There's got to be some good combinations of the old and the new here that can make sure there's a continuity, but also an evolution. I think that sounds like a pretty good place to start.
1: Well, maybe we could even reconvene if, if any of us have any kind of revelations about what that might look like but obviously that's a that's a monumental job i hope that um the the academy as it were as in a broad description of all uh, higher learning facilities does admit people who are willing to research and are willing to try and answer those questions um both for your sake and for men at large peter mm-hmm. um Thank you very much, Peter, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you.
2: It's always a pleasure to speak to you both.
0: And thank you, David.
2: Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OZCast Network. Peace out.